I'm Tim. I'm the campus pastor here at Waters Church, North Attleboro. We are one church in three locations, North Attleboro and Taunton, Massachusetts. And everybody here in North Attleboro, would you do me a favor? Taunton watches these messages by video. Let's everybody just welcome in our Taunton campus. Say hello to them. Glad to have you here. If you have a Bible today, let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 or the iPhone Bible or the Droid Bible. Whatever Bible you use, let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We're concluding our series on prayer, living on a prayer. It has been an 80s-themed series. If you were coming in for the first time and you were early and you heard... Uh, beat it by Michael Jackson playing over the speakers, and you were wondering what kind of heresy we were pumping through here. We just want to let you know that was just a theme. It's over. We're going to get back to being Christians next week, okay? <laughs> one last week of being heathens from the 80s. It's a 1980s-themed series. If you were here for week one, we rocked out to living on a prayer. Last week, rocked out to don't stop believing. This week, Michael Jackson. I mean, where is this church going? <laughs> Who is the leader of this organization? But we're, <laughs> we're excited about the next series coming up, which is in two weeks. That series is going to be Death by Marriage. Death by Marriage. And you're not going to want to miss that, trust me. Especially, listen, the first five minutes, you will not want to miss what's going to happen in that series. All right? So, I almost hesitate to share this last message in Living on a Prayer. I almost hesitate because... You've probably picked up on the theme so far for our prayer series. I consider ourselves a young church. I consider many of you young Christians. Um, I know we have many, many people here who are new to Christ, new to the faith. And I felt that it was essential in our prayer series to really build up your prayer, uh, your faith in prayer. To build up not your faith in prayer per se, but your faith in God, and that you would approach him in prayer with absolute confidence and certainty as young believers or new believers, or even if you're a long-time believer, to believe God and to really um, get fired up about prayer because he answers prayer, and he wants you to pray, and there's a, a heaven filled with answers to prayers that were never asked. And so the theme for the first five weeks, or first four weeks of this series has just been positive after positive after positive and, and, and always going after it. So I hesitate today because the title is When God Says No. <laughs> and we're shifting gears 180 degrees here. But it is a, an important job of a pastor to present to you the whole counsel of God. Not just to present those verses that we like, and not just to present the things that we appreciate about God or we really enjoy about being his children. But we also have to look at and we have to study the topics that we don't like. Because let me, let me take a straw poll. How many of you here love it when God says no? One liar. Um, God's going to say no. He is going to say no. Like any good parent, he's going to say no when no is necessary. And if you're a parent, you understand that you probably say no a heck of a lot more times than you say yes. Well, God's the very same way. Remember the, that Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer, in our prayer. He said, you're approaching God like this, our Father. Our, meaning that there's more than you to worry about here. And that he's a Father, meaning that he's going to care for you like a parent. Like a spiritual, supernatural, all-powerful parent who knows exactly what is best for you at the right time. 
And I want to share with you, if you get your notes out, to fill in the blanks here, because there are some principles, there are some things that you need to hear about when God says no. The first thing that I want to share with you before we get to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 is that there are two ways that God says no. And the first way that God says no is this. God says no to our prayers out of principle. Fill it in, principle. That there are some ironclad, biblical, rock-solid, Word of God principles that are already outlined for you and for me and for everybody watching by video that you could just take it to the bank. God's not going to say yes when you do these things or when this, this scenario is in place. So filling in the blanks, going quickly through the principles. Number one, God says no when we live in disobedience. God says no when we live in disobedience. Now listen, uh, we all sin. James says we all stumble in many ways. But there's a difference between stumbling in one sin here or there and perpetually living in sin. And you know it's wrong, and you don't care what God says, and you're just going to do it anyway. That's rebellion. And you know that Samuel said to Saul that rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. In other words, you are thinking that you are above the law. You are thinking you are above the supernatural authority of God. And so when you habitually live in disobedience, you better take it to the bank. God's going to say no. I got, scripture, I got scripture for you, Psalm chapter 62, or Psalm 66, verse 18 says, if I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. And in another, passage, in another translation, it says, the Lord would not hear my prayer. The Bible says this in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, it says, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. So God will say yes. God will answer our prayers when we obey his commandments. By the way, his two most important commandments are love him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and also love your neighbor as you love yourself. And so that love your neighbor as you love yourself thing, that's really going to help you understand why God says no sometimes. Because I've got three children. I've got two that ask me for everything. And I can't give one one when I know that giving one to that one is going to hurt the other one or make the other one feel terrible. And you got to understand that's how God sees us. It is not, you are not an only child. Okay? you got a lot of brothers and sisters in God, in Christ, who he has to watch over. And sometimes saying no to you is good for somebody else. And so that's off topic. But when we live in obedience, we can expect God to answer. But when we do what pleases him... So the opposite is absolutely true, that when we disobey and when we are living in habitual sin, that God is not going to be uh, inclined to answer our prayers, because then we'll never change who we are. And listen, God cares a heck of a lot more about who you're becoming than what you're getting. I wish I had a good amen for that one, because that was good. But we'll say it again later in the message, and you can say amen then. Number two, God says no when our motives are wrong. God says no when our motives are wrong. And let's just be honest. You know that the prayer, God, help me win the lottery, always has wrong motives. Your, your motive for that prayer is, I don't want to trust you as much, God. I want to trust money. I don't want to have to ask other people for things. I don't want to live dependently on anybody else. I want to be independent. Guess what? God did not create you to be independent. God created you to be 
interdependent with people and him. And you are to live eternally dependent on the Father. And so this idea of having a lot of money, it sounds good. And yeah, I'm sure you've prayed it, and I've prayed it. And yes, there are people, maybe you're praying it right now. You need to stop, because God knows your motive. And if your motive is so that you have to trust him less by getting that thing, you better believe God's going to say, no, thank you. No way. I want you depending on me. I want you calling on me. I want you living with me in eternity. And that's not going to happen if you think you're independent of God. The Bible says in James chapter 4, verse 2, he says, you do not have because you do not ask God. But he says this, when you ask God, you do not receive because you ask with wrong, say the word with me, motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. God knows your motives. Check your heart. Maybe your motives are out of place. Maybe you need to do a gut check and see, why am I really asking God for this? And if your motives are wrong, well, you better thank him that he knows they're wrong and it's not best for you and he's going to say no because he's a good father. Amen, somebody? Number three, God says no when we mistreat others. God cares how we treat each other. And he's watching us. I've already said it. The second greatest commandment is love your neighbor as you love yourself. If you don't love your neighbor, Jesus says, you don't love me. He says in another passage in 1 John, if you claim to love God but you do not love your neighbor or you do not love your brother, you're a liar. You're, you're not speaking the truth. To love God is to love his creation. And the highest, the pinnacle of his creation is humanity. So when you love God, it absolutely flows to loving people and caring for those that he has made. Everybody, every single person, the ones you love and the ones you hate, the ones you dislike and the ones you'd rather not be around, they're all made in the image of God. And they are all somebody for whom Jesus died. Did you ever think about that? The guy who cut you off on the highway this week, Jesus died for him. The guy who gave you the bird after he cut you off on the highway this week, Jesus died for him. And God loves him and God wants him to be in his family. You might not want anything to do with them. You might avoid them like the plague. God loves them and God cares how you treat them. So the Bible says a big, big deal in the Bible, big deal in the Old Testament about the poor. And here's what it says in Proverbs chapter, uh, Proverbs 21, 13. It says, if a man shuts his ears to the cry of the poor, he too will cry out and not be answered. Who are you helping out that's less, more, that's, that's, uh, less fortunate than you? Who are you helping out uh, that needs your assistance? God's watching how you treat your neighbor. God's watching how a church treats the least of these, his brothers and his sisters. That there's a parable in the, in the New Testament in Matthew 25, and Jesus says, I was sick and you came to see me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. And they all say, when did we see you doing all those things, Lord? And he says, I, truly I say to you, whatever you did to the least of these, my brethren, you did to me. When you love the poor, you love Jesus. 
When you care for somebody who can't care for themselves, you're caring for Jesus. And you got to know that if you can't care for the least of these, then why would you ever expect God to take an interest in what you need and what you uh, desire? But he's watching how we treat each other. In Isaiah 1, it's not up on the screen, but in Isaiah 1, listen to this passage. You think God has a care for the, for the down and out. Here's what it says. Isaiah 1, 15. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Why? Because your hands are full of blood. You mistreat other people. Verse 16, wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Verse 17, learn to do right. Seek justice. Justice. Treat everybody fairly. Encourage the oppressed. That's who God has his eyes on. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. How we treat each other will hold back God's answers to our prayers. Because every person in the, on the face of the earth is made in the image of our God. Now this next one is 3B. This one applies to a specific portion of our audience and this one applies to you men. Here's what the Bible says. There's a special designation to the men of the faith in how they treat their wives. God says no, husbands or men, to be husbands. God says no when we mistreat our wives. He does. He cares about how you care for your bride. Now, the Bible gets a lot of flack about being anti-woman. And I know that in the culture of our world, it, you'll hear it from the people who haven't actually read the Bible, that the Bible is all about the subjugation of the female, the, 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 the man dominates and the woman just toes the line and stays barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen for the rest of her life. And you'll hear that mantra, but you'll never hear them talk about how much God holds men accountable to how they treat that woman that is in their house that is also made in the image of God. And listen, men, is a daughter of God. Here's what it says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Husbands, treat your wives with understanding as you, as you live together. Um, she may be weaker than you, and that's not to say that she's less than you, because look at what he says later. She may be weaker than you are, but she is your, next word? Equal, Equal partner. Now, how come you haven't seen that on the news lately? Oh, they'll throw that, sub submit yourselves to your husbands, un not totally un misunderstanding the word submit, by the way, which we're going to talk about someday in the future here. But, but listen, they'll throw all that out at you and see how the Bible is so anti-woman, but they'll never throw th 1 Peter 3, 7 at you, will they? Treat your wives as the equal partner in God's gift of new life. Treat her as you should so your prayers, this is what we're really getting at, so your prayers will not be hindered. Let me ask you fathers, if you have a daughter and she's married to a young man and you know for a fact that that guy is mistreating your sweetheart and he comes over and he has the audacity to ask you for money or he's the audacity to ask you to borrow the lawnmower or he has the audacity to say, I need, you, need a favor, are you going to be the least inclined to say yes to him? No way. You're going to say, I'm watching how you treat my special lady there and it's wrong and you need to repent or I'm going to go get my shotgun. How about that? <laughs> no, 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 I'm going to love you in Jesus' name, but I'm going to love you with the five-fold ministry sometime. And, and so God is watching how we handle our wives. She's God's daughter. She's God's precious 
daughter. So husbands, watch out. Watch out. Treat her as you should, as your equal partner. You don't subjugate her. She's not less than you. She's your equal partner in God's gift of new life. Let me just say something to believers. Every believer in the house, listen to me. i got to say this in love. If you're living together and you think God's going to answer your prayers, you're wrong. you got to put a ring on it. Oh, 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 oh. All right? Put a ring on it. I, I don't understand these ladies today how they will live with a guy and sing that song. I don't understand. At least if you're going to sing it and listen to it, do it. You know what I'm talking about? Put a ring on it and show her that you are committed to her for life. The ladies, man, that was a great amen point for you, but you missed it. All right, now, second reason. That's, that, that, those are the principles. God's principles, they're clearly outlined in his word. If you're out of line with those, good news. Repent, confess, ask forgiveness. God will forgive you instantly, and he'll cleanse you of your unrighteousness, and you'll have a fresh standing with God. That's the gospel truth. So make right in those areas. Make right, and then you can start taking your prayers to God with more confidence. But there's a second reason why God says no. And if you're filling in your blanks here. Number two, God says no for a purpose. God says no for a purpose. Let's go to 2 Corinthians now, chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Are you there? Are you there? Yes. Okay, verse 7. Here's what it says. Let's stand together and we're going to read this passage. Here's what Paul says. So to keep me from being too elated, or becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. He says the word again. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that he should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Verse 10, for the sake of Christ, I want to read those words again. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Ooh, how many of us would be content with those kind of things? For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you will speak to each and every single heart, including myself, that you will change us and you will renew our minds and that, God, we will learn how to let go. We'll learn how to let go of thinking we know what's best for our lives. And we'll let you be the judge. And we'll let you be the Lord. And we'll let you be in charge. For the sake of Christ, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a seat. So God says no to his boy. This is Paul the apostle. This is the guy that's written half your New Testament. And he's got this thorn in the flesh. I don't know where it was. But he says what it was, was a messenger of Satan. I don't know 
who that was. Maybe it was a spirit. Maybe it was a demon that wouldn't leave him. Maybe it was somebody speaking to him uh, personally. Some people think it was <clears throat> uh, his uh, ex-associates in, 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 in the world of being a Pharisee. Uh, lots of ideas as to what it was. Let me just say for the sake of this message, what it was is not important. Here's what we're talking about. God said, he said, God, take it away three times, and God said, no. Said no. And this is not the only time Scripture records God saying no to somebody. But this is a, an, an interesting time because when you look at why God said no, you begin to draw out some really powerful, important principles for your life as to why God says no. So you got all those principles down. You're treating people right. You're treating your wives right. <clears throat> your motives are right. <clears throat> Excuse me. And you're living in obedience. But God still says no. What's the deal with that? And now we see that God says no to Paul. He says, I'm not going to remove that thing that's bugging you. <laughs> that thing that you desperately want out. It says, I pleaded. I, ple I begged God. And God said no. Now we know what God did not do for Paul, but let's ask ourselves a question. What did God do for Paul? Because you've got to read the whole chapter in context, and we're not going to do that right now, but if you read the whole chapter in context, you find out why Paul gets around to this thorn in the flesh deal. And you find out that in the first part of 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul is recounting this incredible blessing that God had given him. And the incredible blessing that God had given him, check this out, was a glimpse at heaven. God gave Paul the opportunity to visit heaven before he died. And it says it in, in the beginning of the chapter in verse 2. It says, I know a man in Christ, and theologians all agree he's talking about himself, who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. There's the first heaven, which is this. The second heaven, which is the constellation, the stars, the moon, all that stuff. And the third heaven, which is God's dwelling place. He says he was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body. I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body. I don't know. He, God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which a man may not utter. Could you imagine that kind of experience? To, get, to, to be like, God, you know what, uh, you've just been so good to me, and, and I love you so much, and you're having this conversation with God, and, and you have a close conversation with God when you're the Apostle Paul, and you're writing half the New Testament. <laughs> and you just like, God, I just, I have, a, I have a favor. Could I get a sneak peek at what's waiting for me after I die? Because, <laughs> you know, I've been beaten, and I've been persecuted, I've been running from city to city, and trying to, you know, outrun the Judaizers and the people that want to kill me and all that. Could I just get a to make sure this is all worth it? And could you imagine that God would say, yeah, sure, no problem, come on up. Wow, like that is so awesome. Could you imagine a better blessing from God? And God's like, sure. And he brings him up to heaven and he shows him. And Paul has the audacity to tell us that he's not allowed to say anything about it. That's what I always hated about 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I mean, at least give us some details. He's like, it was just too good for words, too too wonderful to tell you. I can't put it into description. So by the way, if you think it's not worth serving Jesus, you're dead wrong. Heaven's going to be awesome. And so he sees heaven. Now, he can't stay there because he's still got work to do. Comes back. And God knows Paul. If anybody knows Paul, God knows Paul. And Paul has a history. 
And his history has been this lifelong struggle with pride. That, you know, everybody has their issue, right? Everybody has their thing, their addiction, uh, their sin, their covetousness, their jealousy, their bitterness, whatever it is. Here's Paul's pride. We know Paul's story. Paul, before he met Christ, was a Pharisee. In fact, he wasn't just a Pharisee. He was like the leader of the Pharisees. He was the, the valid Victorian of the Pharisees. He was the leader of the pack. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was blameless in all the law, perfect man according to all the customs and regulations and sacrifices and all those things. He said, I was blameless. And because of that, he believed that he was always right all the time, and anybody who said anything differently deserved to be imprisoned or killed, especially these Jews who called themselves followers of Jesus. Those guys really needed to be killed, and quickly. And he's got this arrogance about him. Remember Paul? He was standing, holding the coats of the very men who were stoning Stephen. Could you imagine being that guy? Like, uh, I got to go kill this guy over here. Would you just mind just, could I just, sure, I'll hold your coat. And he holds all the coats for everybody as he watches Stephen, the church's first martyr, being pelted to death by stones. And not only that, but he then goes and he gets letters from the chief priests and the, Pharisee, uh, the, the leaders of the Sanhedrin. And, and he gets letters to go from city to city to pr- imprison, persecute, and, and subjugate all the followers of Jesus. Could you say this guy has a pride problem? Like, you know, if they don't agree with you, Paul, that's fine. Just let them go their way. No, 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 not good enough. They need to be in prison. They need to be crucified. They need to be killed just like their follower. And we know his story, right? Acts chapter 9, he's on his way to Damascus. Bright light shining. God knocks him down. There is no horse, by the way. God just knocks him down to the ground, blinds his eyes. Jesus shows up and says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you? He says, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. Again, who, how, you, how you treat his followers is how you treat Jesus. And Paul is just knocked down, KO'd by Christ. Pride gone. The Bible says that he had to ask for people to lead him into the city. Could you imagine this, this proud, arrogant, flowing robes, hat, the whole deal, Pharisee, and now hats off, the robes shattered, it's all dusty and muddy, and he's just like a blind man, just walking. I mean, that's how God handles pride sometimes. He'll just knock you right down on your face. And so Paul has this exceedingly great revelation of heaven, and God is like, all right, I did this for you, Paul. But I know you. I know your past. I know your struggle. And I know that just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that the struggle goes away. Amen, somebody. And I know that pride would love to rear its ugly head in you again. So I got to do something to keep you in check. And Paul says, Paul says to keep me from becoming conceited. A thorn in the flesh was given me. To keep me because of these surpassing revelations. God kept me in check. And I prayed about it, and God said no. And here's the point that I want to make. Listen, God says no. Here's why. Because God knows you well enough to say no at all the right times, if you're taking notes. God knows you well enough to say no to you at all the right times. Do you understand how well God knows you? God knows you better than you know yourself. 
you might think you have a real good idea of what kind of person you are, and God says, you have no idea who you are. I created you. I know what you are. I know exactly the kind of person you are. God knows us better than we know ourselves. And so that's why when we're struggling in prayer for something and we're absolutely convinced that this is what God should do, God's up in heaven saying, you have no idea what you should really have. Here's what, here's what it says in Psalm 139. It says, oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. He not only knows your thoughts, he discerns them. In other words, he, he knows what they're really about. He says, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Listen to this. This is how well God knows us. Check this out. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. So that tells me this. Even before you say that stupid thing that you shouldn't have said, God knew you were going to say it. How many of you would just like the Holy Spirit to just let you know, let you in on that? Like, could you just let me know next time? I'm <laughs> and I think that he could and he will. But, but, but here's, here's what it says. You know the word on my tongue before it's out of my mouth altogether. Meaning that he doesn't just know what's going to come out. He knows what it's going to mean. And then he knows what it really means. That's how well God knows us. God knows for you three things. He knows what's good for you. He knows what's better for you. And he knows what's best for you. And sometimes, check this out, I believe God says no to the good and no to the better so that he can give you the best. He knows you well enough to know what has the capacity to destroy you. What has the capacity, the propensity to make you the biggest jerk the world has ever seen. And that if you got that thing that you so desperately want, you might just become the very epitome of what you should not be in Christ. Paul says he knows me. He knows my problem is conceit. He knows my problem is pride. Number two. God is more concerned about your character than your comfort. God is more concerned about your character than your comfort. Listen to me very closely because we live in a nation that idolizes comfort and thinks that that was God's intent from the beginning. That paradise is sitting on a barco lounger by a pool with a pina colada in your hand with a little umbrella on it and a little umbrella over you. That's paradise. That's not paradise. The Garden of Eden, the Bible says that God said, I want you to work it. I want you to work it. I want you to be fruitful. I want you to multiply in that garden. You know that work is a gift from God? Production, producing, being fruitful in your life, in your business, that's what God made you for. And if you're not productive, you'll get depressed because you're not doing anything that's productive in your life. In fact, has anybody ever completed a project and immediately after the project, you're just like, wow, I just feel so good about this project being done. You know why? Because that's how God wired you to live. You are not made for comfort, is what I'm trying to say. You are not made for comfort. You are not made for comfort. I mean, I, as much as you think it's all about you being calm, cool, and collected, and comfortable for the rest of your life, the compassion of God says no. 
I care a heck of a lot more about your character. I'm concerned, and I said this earlier, he's more concerned about who you're becoming than what you're getting. So sometimes God says no to make you a better you. Why? Because he knows you better than yourself. There's a missionary to India. Her name was Amy Carmichael. If you know anything about Christian history, you know Amy Carmichael's story. She was a little girl that grew up in a small village in Ireland. And everybody, all the little girls in that village had blue eyes, pretty, pretty blue eyes. And she writes in her autobiography how she prayed every night, God, make my brown eyes blue. And she had, she had pretty blue, brown eyes. Everybody else had blue. Make my brown eyes blue every night. And God never answered her prayer. God said no, no, no. When she became a young woman, she felt the call of God to be a missionary to India. And she moved to India and started ministering to the people of the Hindu culture. And she found out that she, they, the women of that culture, this is in the early part of the first, not last century, they were selling their young daughters as prostitutes in the Hindu temple. And so she decided that she would disguise herself as an Indian woman, go into the prostitution temple, pretend to be their mothers, and rescue those, br- those pretty young daughters from the, from, the, from the temple. And she did this for years. She was in India for 55 years rescuing girls from prostitution in a Hindu temple. And she used to describe, th- th- she talks about how she used to disguise herself. She took coffee grinds, and she would rub them over her face to make herself look more Indian. And one day she was looking in the mirror and she was putting those coffee grinds on her face to make her skin look darker like an Indian. And she looked in the mirror and she saw her brown eyes and she realized suddenly it all clicked. All the Indian girls had brown eyes. And to fit in with that culture, she had to have brown eyes or they never would have bought it. She looked in the mirror and she said, God, you are so good. Thank you for saying no. Could there be a time in your life where you are praying for the very thing that will hurt you in the long run. That you will get it and it will pause your life from the dynamic, divinely appointed purposes that God has, that God has made you for. Yes, God knows you better than you know yourself. And God is more concerned about your character than your comfort. Thirdly, and this is so important. How you respond to God's no reveals more about you than God's yes. So God says no, what are you going to say? That's who you really are. That's who you really are. Listen to me. Everybody can be happy when everything's going their way. Everybody can be the coolest guy, the nicest girl, the strongest Christian when God is answering all your prayers and you're getting all the money you need and everything's going exactly how you want it to go. That is not the, reve- the revelation of your character, my friend. The revelation of your character is when all hell breaks loose, nothing's going your way, you don't know what's coming next, and you're wondering where God is. That is the revelation of who you really are. And how you respond to God's no's says a heck of a lot more about you than God's yes. Here's what Andy Stan- uh, Charles Stanley writes. He says, if we refuse God's answer when they don't fit in with our plans, then we are trying to use God for our purposes. But if we graciously accept his answer, no matter what they are, he will use us for his glory. My wife and I watched a movie a couple months back. It was called Higher Ground. 
It's about a woman who grew up uh, as a Christian, joined this very fundamentalist Pentecostal church, got really into the culture of that church, and very legalistic, very, you know, women-dominated, uh, dominating women, that whole deal. That very, very, you know, not the church I would go to, or not the church I would recommend, but she was in that culture, and she the memoirs of her book is what the movie is based on, and she experiences, number one, that um, her, the passion in her marriage starts to dry up. And then she pray, they pray for her friend to get healed of a brain tumor, and, and she barely survives the surgery, and she's basically a vegetable. And she sees that happen. And slowly but surely, she fades away from the faith. And she walks out the door of the church in the last scene. And I remember watching the credits roll. My heart broke. And I said to myself, it all clicked. Suddenly it just came to me. God kind of just said to me, you see what happens when I don't serve people's purposes? The question is, who are you really serving? Listen, no, 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 no. Don't, don't let that just go by you for a minute. Who are you really serving? Because if you're really serving God, then God's no is always what you should have when he says you should have it. But if you're expecting God to serve you, if you're in this, if you're in the faith, if you're following Jesus for what Jesus can do for you, you better watch out. You better watch out because that's just not how it works. God is the Lord of the universe. And he's watching over everybody. And you're going to expect the sovereign creator of everything and everyone to kowtow to your whim when you feel it necessary. And the moment that it doesn't happen in the way that you think it should happen, you're going to walk out the door on that. Watch out. You got a perspective problem. You are not God. You are not the creator of the universe. There's one Lord. There's one sovereign. His name is Jesus. He's king. He's Lord. He's God. And so you better watch out who you're really serving. What are you really in this for? Because there's a whole boatload of Christians out there, and maybe even in here. It's you're in this for as long as the getting's good. And when that Job-like experience happens, you'll be like, mm, God knows you better than you know yourself. God's knows are always at the right time. And how you say no, how you respond to God's no's reveals more about you than God's yeses. Here's what Paul said. After all that, he comes to this conclusion, and I just don't want you to miss this. He says, therefore, after hearing God say no, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me who are you serving who are you in this for because your prayer might get a no and it's going to tell you a lot about you but it's going to be the perfect time and it's going to be the perfect thing for you at that time i want you to stand with me